Again, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. Everyone who believes to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It is written, and the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's word. Thanks, Rio. I was, I was uh, reflecting on weekly battles that we face. Uh, just this week, I've heard of battles as serious as ongoing conflict with a loved one, battles against uh, personal isolation, against temptation, against uh, addictions of various kinds. But I've also heard of, of minor battles, like uh, your long-suffering battle with technology that many of you in this room face. That's, we know that's true. Um, and for us, for my family, the, the, the battle of the, uh, of, uh, with a mouse, we have, we have a mouse in our house. Uh, we basically have uh, the living embodiment of the Tom and Jerry cartoon taking place in our home, except we don't have a cat and we haven't met Jerry. He actually just leaves little evidences of himself in places. But, but in all seriousness, like you, I, you know, I've, we, I've faced battles serious and minor, but the toughest battle, which impacts all other battles and which I continually seem to face, is simply believing that the God of this universe really loves me. That's the battle I face the most, and it impacts everything I do and every relationship that he really loves me. I can believe that God loves other people. <laughs> I've staked my whole life on this, uh, my ministry, my reputation on that fact. Yet after all these years of walking with Jesus, the tooth and nail battle that I, that I go through in my life is believing that he really loves me. And it's really, it's the years that can work against you. As you get older, you, you take more and more stock of your life and one of two related questions inevitably begin to haunt people as they get a little older, every person, I think, which is, am I good enough, and have I done enough? As you begin to take stock of life, these questions begin to haunt every person. I once heard an older and wiser pastor remark, am I good enough, is a question that often non-religious persons ask. Uh, so in our passage, the Greeks, as, as Reno mentioned, am I the kind of person who has, has made a difference, who has influenced the world for good. While the religiously kind of wired person tends to ask, have I done enough? That's like the Jew mentioned in our passage, right? That thinking of various commands and rules that are issued by God and have I really lived up to them the way that I should? Well, Paul's massive letter to the church of Rome is constructed to answer these two related questions. Am I good enough? Have I done enough? And Romans first shouts at us with a resounding no. <laughs> you are not good enough. You have not done enough. And we've talked about this over the last four weeks. One of life's first aha moments is we're in this never-ending saga of finding something or someone to continuously pour our hopes into, to continually look forward to these things. And we first experience this when we realize there's this toy we have as a kid, but we want this other toy. Then we get that other toy. And then we want another toy. <laughs> That's good for a while. We want another toy after that. And we start to realize, wait a minute, 
Why do I not stay satisfied with one toy? This continuous outpouring is called worship. You can't turn it off. You can only exchange your objects of worship. You move from, we move from object to object, hoping that one will satisfy us, but we continually, usually choose things that don't actually satisfy us, that aren't good enough to really quench that thirst inside of us until we do. And we outpour. We make these choices because of the big no that begins in our hearts and leaks out through our words and through our actions. From the time I th throw uh, Gerber back in the face of the person trying to feed me, right? And I say no to them as I throw it back in their face. I say no to them or to any good authority that's actually trying to help me in my life. I think they're threatening my autonomy. The Bible calls this sin, this big no in our hearts that leaks out through our words and our actions. And we learn how deep the rabbit hole goes with sin through our study in Romans, that Paul, like Jesus before him, broke with the typical religious teaching of the day and instead defined sin in terms of slavery, an offensive term in the Greek and Roman world, just like it is today. Slavery, because it conveyed a sense of helplessness from which we cannot simply get out on our own, right? And we sense that together. But we say, well, but wait. What if God established a set of rules, a checklist, if you will, to help us climb our way out of this hole, to, to sort of bust out, to burst the bonds of slavery? And he did. He called this law. Law. So a guy named Moses comes down a mountain with some wonderful rules, but he comes down that mountain without the power to follow them. We might go through a season of trying to live up to parent-imposed, self-imposed, God-imposed rules, or everything might come from it. We quickly figure out that the very thing we want to do, we can't do, and the things we hate to do, those are the things we actually end up doing because of law. And we start to hate that. So we start to hear every rule as an adversarial. Law is an attack. It's an indictment on my individuality and my ability. Every law an attack such that we're now in an adversarial relationship with God. And if something isn't done about that big no in our hearts that enslaves us and to which we give ourselves over to, there's this day of future judgment in which God will finally give to us forever what we so much wanted while we lived, which is ultimately having nothing to do with God. While we lived, he'll give us that forever, having nothing to do with him. And this is the turning point here. This is the turning point where we go from hopelessness to hope. It was a turning point for Martin Luther. You may have heard of him and something famous called the Protestant Reformation. Um, there's only one church in town. There's only one church in the game. For, for 1,500 years, the Catholic Church, and the story goes that this German Catholic monk named Martin, he would go to confession He'd go to a priest, he'd confess his sins, and the priest would pronounce forgiveness over him, give him some penance to do, and Luther would start to walk home. But on his way home, the problem was Luther would have an impure thought. It would go through his head. He'd start to ponder a grudge he had against someone. He'd think about amassing more wealth. What if I wasn't a monk and I had money? And just like that, he would turn back around and go back to the confessional. He'd get, he'd get forgiveness, he'd get penance. He start to walk home again, and boom, an impure thought comes to his head. Guess what happens? He goes back to confessional. <laughs> you can imagine how maddening this was for Luther. He can never be sure 
that he was right with God because he too was famously haunted. Am I good enough? Have I done enough? So he was tasked by his monsignor to actually translate the book of Romans. So he's sitting there as a monk. His monsignor comes along and says, hey, I want you to translate this book. So he starts translating it from Greek into German. And as he translates, he gets to verses 16 and 17, the same verses that Reno read for us this morning. And he reads his verses, and the light bulb goes off, and he is liberated. From that point forward, he realizes he's got answers to those questions. Am I good enough? Have I done enough? God provided a way to be liberated from these haunted questions once and forever in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What we, humanity, did wrong, Jesus did right. And so this morning, our big word for living is righteousness. It's a great word to say. It was back in the 70s, it was popular. People said, we used to say righteous, right? You know, and I love, I love when people did that. It's a great word. It's a lost word. It's a word we're going to uncover and rediscover this morning. Because Jesus did right before you. Jesus did right in you. And Jesus does right for you. Again, Jesus is right before you, Jesus is right in you, and Jesus is right for you. Let's start with Jesus does right before you. Paul says of the gospel that in it, it is, for, it is the power of God for salvation. Read that with me. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed in this gospel. So that's the first term we got to deal with. The gospel is a Greek word that literally means good news. It means good news. It was, it was just a summary for a much, for this wonderful story. The good news begins that with God, our creator, who, who was and is so full of love that his love overflowed in the creation of human beings, whom he invited to love him back with all of who they are and to love their neighbors much as they love themselves. Sadly, the first human beings decided to love self more than God and other things more than neighbor. A tragic pattern that's continued to this day, such that every human being begins life actually separated relationally from God. But, but this didn't cause God's love for humanity to wane. Instead, at just the right time, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live the perfect life of love that we couldn't live and out of love to die the death we deserve. And then he raised Jesus from the dead to prove that all the promises of love would come true, forever forgiveness, and God with us always and no matter what. That is the story of the good news. And Jesus already did this. He already did everything right that you and I could not. So this is no small deal. So I mixed a little math and science together for this message this morning, just to show you how smart I am. Not really. Um, but I, I did this. Jesus, Jesus lived approximately 33 and a half years, which is, I read, about 1,057,157,021 seconds. In every second, the average human being's brain has 100 billion neurons firing 200 times per second, giving a capacity of 20 million, 20 million billion firings per second. So if you want to know how many conscious... We, we know that Jesus, every decision he made was for the love of the Father and love of neighbor. If you want to know how many conscious decisions Jesus made to obey his Father's will, 
multiply 20 million billion by the number of seconds he lived, right? We recognize that was 1 billion, 57 million, 157,000, 21 seconds. That equation would look something like this. It's up here on the screen, which is, I can't even give you the number. It's, it's in the trillion. It's a very large number of Jesus doing right. That is what Jesus did right. And he did all this. He did all of this right before you, before me, before anyone on this earth, now on this earth, existed. And I want us to understand that's a truth we often take for granted, that Jesus has already done all of this right. And then it's, it's liberating because we, we have been conditioned to assign value to momentary relevance. And I want to think about how, how that's, that's happened in our lives. For example, sports fans know this. The favorite player on a team is the backup quarterback. Little is known about the backup quarterback, but they represent new possibilities, new hopes, new dreams for the fan, right? And then that quarterback plays. Yikes. <laughs> the result is troublesome, almost always. All of a sudden... He's no longer relevant. He's the same person, but there's less value to him. I was reading an article about two young up-and-coming politicians, both of whom who had, had similar popularity, similar poll numbers. Both were considering runs for uh, president, uh, U.S. president in, in 2008. One decided to take a chance, strike while the iron was hot. The other thought it was best to wait. My time will soon come, he thought. The former became a two-term president that a lot of people put their hopes and dreams in. And the latter became old news, somehow lackluster. In fact, I uh, recently ran for governor in a swing state and lost by 15 points, the, the most landslided loss in the history of, of modern elections for, for, for that state. Even though he's the same person, hasn't really changed. His value did. Something or someone has value because enough of us lend relevance to it until we don't any longer. And so we, we spend life deferring our hopes, this person, that thing, this person, that thing, this person, that thing, until we get to the point where it becomes exhausting. What Jesus did was before us. He, what he did is good no matter how many times I walk away or return. What he did is eternally valuable no matter what people say about him or think about him. No matter how many times I get caught up in other trends, lifestyles, diets, programs, whatever it might be, other hopes, the good news of what Jesus has already did will always be for us an anchor we can return to. And isn't that a relief? It is permanent. It is fixed. It is anchored. What he has done for us, what he's done right for us, we can always go back to. What a relief. How liberating is that, right? as is the fact that Jesus does right in us. So Jesus is right before us, but Jesus also does right in us. In the good news of Jesus, we're told here in verse um, 17, that the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. Now this phrase in the Old Testament has to do with God's transformative work in, in people, in kingdoms, in the world. And this transformative work that he kind of gives in the world, and then he's one day going to finally complete. Now, you likely didn't know this, but this important phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed, has caused a huge debate among Bible scholars. Huge debate. 
put to, put, and I don't want to get into all the minutia of it, so I'm going to put the debate to us pretty simply. Which is more important, that all the wrongs of this world be changed right, or that I individually get right with God? What would you choose? All the wrongs of this world be changed right, or that I individually get right with God? That's the debate. Thankfully, I believe you don't have to choose. Jesus changes us right so that we get right with God. Jesus changes us right so that we get right with God, not of our own doing. Jesus changes us right, we get right with God. To put it more simply, our message in a nutshell is this, changed right to get right. Changed right to get right. That's as simply as I can put it. In this gift of righteousness given to us through Jesus, we are changed right to get right with the Father forever. So we're talking first about being changed right. When you put your trust your, your faith in Jesus, the future hope of, of everything wrong with this world getting changed right, it rushes into your present. The, a, a taste of that comes into your present. You get united with the resurrected Jesus. That's why Paul later tells us that he was raised for our justification. Romans 4.25. Uh, justification comes from the same root word in Greek as righteousness, uh, dikaio. So they're basically the same thing. Ephesians 2 verse 6 likewise says that God raised us up. When we trust Christ, God raised us up with Jesus, seated us with him in the heavenly places, which sounds pretty crazy, right? Because we're actually sitting here right now. (laughs) Earlier we sang, my life is hidden with Christ on high. That hymn says life is hidden with Christ on high, which is basically comes directly from Colossians chapter 3 verse 3. There's there's something that happens in us and to us when we trust Jesus. In his classic commentary on Romans, this really wonderful man named, a theologian named John Murray, he noted how you, you can't just think of righteousness as simply a bank account of credit stored up for you. It is union with Christ himself that we are justified, he says. There is a real change to our soul, to our spirit that takes place when we trust Jesus. He mystically bonds us with himself So that in that moment, we become united. We become one with the kind of person we've always wanted to be. Someone like Jesus. We become the kind of person, one with the person we've always wanted to be. Which answers that question, am I good enough? Yes, because you're united to Jesus. The Bible talks about this being changed right is becoming a, a, a new person, a new creation, or receiving a new, a tender heart. So we used to live, um, my family and I, in the Chicago area, in Chicago, right? Land of Portillo's, Polish sausage, right? And the thickest kind of pizza you can find, right? That's where we lived. We loved, I love Chicago. One of my favorite cities in the United States. But living in that kind of place, right, that I described, it's not surprising that I met a gentleman who needed a new heart, Needed some heart surgery, specifically a transplanted heart because of all that stuff. Afterwards, after he had the heart surgery, heart transplant, didn't feel any different. In fact, he said he felt like he'd been hit by a Mack truck. And even weeks, months went by, he kept talking about how he doubted the surgery worked. He would joke that maybe the, maybe the doctor, maybe the surgeon transplanted the wrong organ. It took six months before he even saw the effects, but finally, he most certainly did. After those six months, when you put your faith or your trust in Jesus, there really is a transplanted heart in there 
which is now permanently united to the one who saved you, it just may take a little while to see the effects. You may not see them right away, but there really is something new in there. This is why Paul says this event of of changing us right is from faith to faith, he says, right? From faith to faith. Your footnote there in the Bible actually says beginning and ending in faith. Because all of life from beginning to end is this necessary struggle of, of believing what my eyes don't yet see. I don't see the change, but the change is really there. Which is why we're told also in this passage we're not to save by faith, but that the righteous shall live by faith. All of life is this struggle to continually believe that the same power that God will exercise to right all the wrongs of this world has rushed into me as a kind of first fruits or hors d'oeuvre of change. Right? I'm the hors d'oeuvre of change. The whole entree is one day coming in the future when Jesus comes again. But right now, I'm the hors d'oeuvre. Which is why we need to keep reminding each other, don't we? On Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, when we get together, hey, you've been changed right. We need to remind each other of this. You have been changed right. Don't forget that, brother, sister. You've been changed right, and thus all things will one day be changed right. And think about, by the way, how that practically impacts and liberates my living. Many of us care about causes of of progress and justice. And and this helps me not rise and fall with each victory or failure in those causes of, of justice and of progress. We don't have to be devastated when we try something for the good of a community, for the good of our city, and it doesn't work out the way we want it to completely or fully. Every incremental change is a first fruit, is an hors d'oeuvre of the total renovation of righteousness that's still to come in Jesus Christ. And that can help us not become devastated or exhausted by our efforts for good. Third thing is that Jesus does right for you. So Jesus does right in you. Jesus does right for you. Which is an answer to the question, have I done enough? Have I done enough? And to put, put it very simply, when you trust Jesus, he exchanges scorecards with you. He exchanges scorecards with you when you trust Jesus. He took upon himself the punishment of your poor life performance and he transfers to you his perfect score. How wonderful is that? I often wonder when I play a round of golf, I wish someone would trans, you know, mix up their score with mine. <laughs> they give me their scorecard, I get theirs, you know, whatever. That's why Romans says, by one man's obedience, many are made righteous. Romans 5, 19. By one man's obedience, his perfect record, many are made right with God. So baseball season's approaching soon, starting to thaw out. One of the first things I noticed when I I visited here in Petaluma and got to know the people here was how obsessed people are in the city with baseball. And I've sometimes teased some of you about it. The joke still isn't landing. I've teased some of you about it because it's funny compared to the rest of the nation, which is not as in love with baseball anymore. But, But Petaluma is. And I've, I have, though, confessed to some of you guys a secret, which is I own a pretty massive baseball card collection. Boxes and boxes of baseball cards came out to Petaluma and are in our garage. Maybe that's why we have a mouse. I don't know. They're like burrowing. I don't know. Inside that collection is a rare uh, Future Stars card 
from the 1980s, and it's worth, this Future Stars card is worth a, a few hundred dollars, which is a lot for a baseball card. And there are three players on this baseball card. I'm going to tell you about each of them. They're, they're young players. They're like rookies. The first player, uh, Jeff Schneider, he played one year of pro ball, pitched in 11 games, gave, 13, gave up 13 earned runs. All right. The second is a guy named Bobby Bonner. He appeared in 61 games for his career, eight RBIs, zero home runs. Not great. Not great, Bob. <laughs> Not great. The third player is a guy named Cal Ripken Jr. He appeared in 3,001 games, almost 1,700 RBIs, 431 home runs. He's a legendary Hall of Famer. I often think about how Bobby Bonner feels about the worth of his baseball card. Think about Bobby Bonner. Surely he doesn't believe it's his performance that makes it valuable, right? But maybe, maybe he's a little bitter. Maybe he's angry that he didn't, he didn't perform well enough. He didn't do well enough to make this valuable. But there's a third option, that he's just giddy. He's just giddy that his value is based on another's performance. And he reaps all the benefits. That's our option as well if we let it in Jesus Christ. If we let it, Jesus' right record, his right performance of getting me right with God can practically liberate me. I'll just give you, there's so many ways this can liberate, practically liberate us in life, but I'm just going to give you a few. Number one, it gives me humble confidence. Something called humble confidence. When I used to perform well, I'd grow confident, but then I'd also become condescending, right? I'd become proud. I'd lack empathy towards other people because I was on my high horse, right? But then when I failed, oh, how, how far that fall was. I'd be humbled, but I'd also be devastated, become despondent. It affected my, my self-image, a low self-image. Notice that in both cases, they're self-centered, right? Really high on myself, really low on myself, and I'm constantly going between these two extremes. But when my value is based on another's performance, I'm confident that I'm loved no matter what, that I'm good, that I'm enough no matter what but it's not based on what I do, so I can't become cocky about it, arrogant about it. It's humble. It's a humble confidence. It's unmovable. It can't be shaken because Jesus has already done that for me. Another way this could practically liberate your life is I, I can start living a life that's less defensive because I've already been judged in Jesus and judged right in Jesus. I may do, need to improve my behavior, but my legal standing with God is forever unmoved, forever unchanged. So if you tell me, hey, you say, Ryan, hey, you're being, you're a little, you're being a little moody. Or you're being a little pushy. I can receive that because my standing with God remains unmoved. What a wonderful place to be, right? Be that kind of person. One, a third way this practically liberates us, Jesus' righteousness. I can put on others what Jesus put on me. I can put on others what Jesus put on me. Imputation is a fancy theological word, uh, which is to put on someone what isn't intrinsically there in them. Put on someone what isn't intrinsically there. So, for example, I begin life wrongly related to God, but through my trust in Jesus, my faith in Jesus, God puts on me Jesus' righteousness. Not intrinsically righteous in and of myself. God puts on me Jesus' righteousness. 
And as Jesus did for me, I can help liberate others by imputing on them what's not intrinsically there. Let me give you an example. I was a new pastor in a new city um, in my 20s. I'd only been there uh, in Tallahassee, Florida for a few weeks. And the lead pastor there asked me to preach. It was my first time preaching in this church and only my second time preaching in a church period. And I'd only been there a few weeks. So the sermon's coming, coming up, you know, we're, we're, we're praying before the service. And one of the elders in the, in the church could tell that I was, I was nervous. I was anxious. So he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Ryan, don't forget, you're among friends. You're among friends. Even though I wasn't, <laughs> I was the sub, right? I'm, I'm the substitute. I'm the new guy. I, I, I hardly knew anyone. But him saying this put on me that which was not intrinsically there. And I felt liberated, at ease. My heart rate slowed, right? My voice strengthened. My eyes brightened. I went out there. I could puff out my chest. And I, I felt confident. All of a sudden, because someone put that on me when it wasn't really there. There might be a friend or neighbor who needs to hear, hey, I believe God has good things for you, good things in store for you. A fellow brother and sister needs to hear, God has changed you right, brother. Don't forget, remember what pastors, God has changed you right. God is going to use you. I'm just confident of it. Some of you who are married here need to tell your spouse, you inspire me. You encourage me. Look me in the eye and say that. They may not feel inspiring, but man, that's going to make them a little more inspiring. You need to tell your children, you're brave. You're strong. You're strong. I can't wait to see what God does with your life, how God is going to use you. Grandparents who are here, are you, you know the person who most needs to hear good news from you? Oftentimes you think it's your grandchildren. It's really not. It's your adult children. Too often I see parents of young children draw judgment from their parents because whose eyes are now on their grandchildren. But you need to remind your adult children, you are enough. You are the perfect parent for your kids. You're the perfect parent for Amelia, for Clara, for whoever that might be. They need to, your adult parents need to hear that. And just watch as their, as their face relax. Their shoulders slacken because they've experienced liberation from the good news that you've imputed on them, that you've put on them. You know, these two questions which most haunt, haunt us, am I enough? Have I done enough? They have a way of creeping back into our minds. We have this twisted way of starting a tally, right? Like one of those clickers, you click, people click for attendance. You start to count up all the ways you fall short, all the failures you, we've amassed. So next time that running tally starts in your head and that condemnation starts pouring through and you, you start listing everything, remember this number up on the screen. The 20 million billion times <laughs> the, the one, the, the trillions of right deeds that Jesus has done, he's done for you. He gives them all to you now as a gift. So I want to encourage you, friends, open your hands, receive them, and rejoice. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would unburden many of us who've been haunted by that question, am I enough or have I done enough? Thank you, Jesus. 
We thank you that you came to live that perfect life we couldn't. And out of love to die the death we deserve and transfer to us that perfect scorecard to, to make us right, to change us right, so we could get right with God forever. What a gift. Help us drink that gift in and throw up our hands and rejoice humbly and see all the ways that it might liberate us from the yoke we carry every day. It's in your name we pray and in your name we rejoice, Jesus. Amen.